This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We have an interesting episode as we are having a special guest. Normally we have researchers, but this time we have a political correspondent of British daily newspaper, The Guardian. During his work time, our guest is covering the UK politics, but in his free time, he has written a highly acclaimed book called The Miracle Pill, Why a Sedentary World is Getting It All Wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Mr. Peter Walker. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah, great to have you. And basically, majority of listeners of this podcast are researchers. So what what points you would like to highlight from your book that researchers maybe are not, not aware of? I mean, I'm sure pretty much, you know, whatever thing I mention, there will be researchers who know something about it because the whole thing about my book is it just puts it all together almost I mean I can certainly talk about the things that surprised me most I mean the one I mentioned earlier I was surprised at how enormous how significant um, ill health due to physical inactivity is and just the sheer number of people who die from it every year and I was interested in the fact that it's not really talked about much and I guess you know the difference is it's not obvious. I mean, coronavirus is direct and happens quickly. If you catch it and you're going to die from it, it's going to happen almost certainly within a few weeks. Whereas, you know, if you're 20 years old and you get a desk job and then spend your evenings watching Netflix, you might not feel the health kind of problems for 20 or 30 years. And those will be um, indirect ones. Um, so it's not kind of sexy in that way. And even like people being uh, overweight, it's not obvious. You can't look at someone and tell that they're uh, inactive. So I found that really, really interesting. The other area I thought is something that politicians certainly need to pay more, a lot more attention to is just, you know, the impact on not just uh, health services, but adult social care, you know, older people's social care of not people dying, you know, early from uh, inactive living, even though that's obviously very, very tragic, but the parallel problem of people living for years or decades with this kind of series of interlinked problems. So, you know, it's quite common to have, because I spoke to doctors about this and they were saying they'll quite often have people in their 50s or 60s coming in with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, you know, various other things. And all these things cost a huge amount. And, you know, the idea we have this situation where the NHS in England, which is, you know, this kind of sacred part of our life, might not be viable in its current form in like 20 or 30 years. People aren't really talking about that. Um, You know, the other really, really interesting things that I found was the debate about sitting down. I mean, that's slightly better known. But um, one of the things that I did was I actually borrowed a kind of research grade activity tracker there's a Danish company which makes them for um, kind of lab tests. They normally kind of sell them, you know, by the kind of dozen or 50 or stuff like that. But they but they sold me one. It's this little tiny tag that you attach to your leg and it communicates by Bluetooth to your phone and then to a website. And at the end of every day, it can give you this kind of chart of what you've been doing. Um, and I wore that 
when I was still doing my day job before COVID kind of um, came. And, you know, even though I'm in general quite active, it was quite shocking to see, particularly in the afternoons, I could be sat down for two or three hours at a time without a break, just, you know, typing. Um, that was interesting. I was really interested and also quite alarmed in the idea of inactivity amongst younger people and how bad that is. You know, that the UK stats are, it's something like four in 10 adults don't meet the kind of minimum activity guidelines, but for children, it's about 80% don't. And that's obviously a really, really you know, bad thing. This is when they should be laying down bone density and, you know, building up their cardiovascular systems. Um, and with that activity tracker, I got my son, who's 10 now, who was nine at the time, to kind of go undercover in the school that he's in. He wore it under his school trousers and then wore it at a, at a weekend. And I could compare how much he was made to sit down in, in school with what his normal kind of lack of sitting down is. And it was quite shocking. You know, his school's very good, but it's a lot of their time they're sitting down to learn. And it was interesting to compare that with countries like Slovenia, Finland and various others who are actually thinking about this and are kind of making efforts to get kids more active. You know, I could go on and I'm sure amongst your listeners, everyone, you know, there'll be someone who'll go, oh, yes, you know, I knew all about that. But, mm. but as, as a kind of whole, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you you tested your activity before COVID when you were still going to the press conferences and so on. What what was the inactive parts of your day? Was it writing the articles or where did the inactivity came from? The, the inactivity is almost all through the job, just having to sit down at um, a computer and and type. I mean, you know, my day was mixed because you know, when I'm going into Parliament, which is where my normal office is, um, I go by bike just because it's the easiest and quickest way for me to do it. And that's about a three mile round trip. So that gives me, you know, a good 40 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity every day, which is, you know, plenty for, for what I need. And the weird thing was, I actually walked perhaps a bit more than I thought. And it's partly because Parliament is such a strange place. Everything's spread out a lot. So even to just go and get a coffee, I have to kind of get up, walk down about four flights of stairs, go down this very kind of long outdoor corridor, up some more stairs, et cetera, et cetera. So I was doing, you know, easily 10 or 12,000 steps a day. The worrying thing was just the fact that um, the amount of sitting down, it could be easily, you know, counting the evenings as well, seven or eight hours a day. And the thing which I knew less about, which, you know, I, I learned about talking to people, is the particular dangers of just uninterrupted sitting time, you know, which is, which is, you know, quite well known that even if you are going to sit down and write a story, which will take two hours, the important thing is to try and get up every 20 minutes and even just walk around the room that you're in, just do anything. Just don't let your legs, you know, particularly the big muscles in your legs, not do anything for a long, long time. So, so that slightly changed me. You know, I got into kind of, um, not when I was, um, uh, still working, but when I was writing the book, uh, particularly when I was writing the chapter about sitting down, I got slightly paranoid about how much I sat down and I didn't have a standing desk where so I just balance my laptop on tops of piles of books and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how, how was the process of writing book? You had the day job. Did you, did you do it in the, in the evening time? How, how was the whole process of, of getting the book out? I did the research during whatever time I had with the day job. So I would quite often just 
say to my colleagues, oh, I've just got to nip outside for a phone call for like 10 or 15 minutes and I'd just be speaking to a professor in America or, you know, somewhere like that. Um, but I was quite lucky that the guardian who I work for has a system where you get a sabbatical every four years, which is uh, four weeks. And I had one coming up um, and I took um, an extra week. So I had five weeks off and I did the bulk of the writing then. I mean, you know, I'm a journalist, so I'm used to writing reasonably quickly. So I had all the research ready and I basically just um, sat and did, you know, six or seven hour days and wrote as much as I could. Um, and I got the bulk of it done then, you know, then there was a period of, you know, in evenings and stuff like that, going over the chapters, checking them and, you know, things like that. But partly because it was the second book I'd written, I found it slightly easier. I knew how to plan things a bit more. Mm, yeah, so quite fast, fast process if you wrote most of it in, in five weeks. I'd written two chapters in advance because the publishers wanted to see a couple of chapters because it was a slightly kind of, you know, it wasn't a book subject they knew much about. So they wanted to know, well, actually before I had um, a publishing deal, my agent was saying, you know, write a couple of chapters just so people can see what it's going to be about. So, you know, that that helped too. I, I had two chapters, you know, I, I changed them a reasonable uh, amount, but the bulk of it was was there. Mm, yeah. And, and you said that you have done the research before. How much did you need to do research? How many people did you talk to and, and how much did you collect read research papers? I mean, the trajectory for any book like this is always, you know, well, both times it happened to me, I start out and think, oh, this is, you know, completely interesting. This is, this is great. And then I have about a week of thinking, I'm never, ever going to get enough information. I don't know enough about it. And then, you know, you spend months gathering the information. Then you realize you've got far too much you can possibly fit into a book. So it's a question of, you know, working out what the interesting things are. And it was a kind of ongoing process. I mean, I spoke to, I don't know, 60 or 70 or so people uh, overall, maybe even more ranging from politicians to academics, to people who run charities, to, you know, people with all sorts of interests. Um, I read hundreds of research papers and, you know, some of them I read a long time in advance, but some you know, literally as I was reading, the, as I was writing the chapter, I thought, oh, I wonder if there's a paper on this. And there's some I found, you know, quite late. Uh, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to be living in an era when research papers are quite easy to get. And as a journalist, um, if some of them, you know, you need to pay for normally, I was usually able to email the press offices for the publishers, you know, for the company that has them up and say, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm writing a book. Can I have a login or can you send me these papers? And most people would. There were two uh, papers I had to get from the Bodleian Library in Oxford because they did not exist. You know, they're ones from like the 1970s. Um, yeah. So I had to email someone there and they, you know, for £10, they found it and scanned it and sent me a copy. Um, apart from that, I went on a few kind of research trips. I went to a hospital to spend the day there with two doctors who kind of are um, consultants in general medicine. So they get to see a lot of the people who come in with the inactivity related stuff. Um, mm. And, you know, that was very easy to get to because that's King's in South London, which is literally a five minutes walk from where I live. Um, but um, I went to Slovenia to meet lots of people about how they kind of deal with inactivity. I went to Finland. Um, I went to Denmark to see Jan Gale and also to do other stuff like that. Um, 
I was actually lucky. I got pretty much all the trips done before kind of the advent of COVID. There were a couple more I was going to do, which I, which I couldn't do. So I had to just speak to people on the phone. Um, mm. But it was this kind of never ending process. It's like building up a jigsaw puzzle. It's just piece after piece. Mm, in, interesting. And you, you're a professional writer. What, what would be your advice for people who are thinking of writing a book? Maybe a, maybe a researcher who's planning on a book. What's, what's your advice? I think the advice is to kind of know what your book is going to be. Um, so for example, with my first book, with the cycling book, it was really obvious it was going to be a book explaining the reasons why you know, more everyday cycling is a good thing. With this one, it was a bit more tricky to kind of put into words. So for example, you know, when you send um, a kind of proposal for a book, you have this thing of three or 400 words about, you know, what the book is, you know, who you are, why it's going to be interesting. And um, because I had sample chapters, I also um, had a kind of proposed outline of the book. And I found the structure really difficult because I, you know, knew what I wanted to say, but didn't quite know how I wanted to do it. And it's actually my uh, uh, agent, Rachel Mills, who's really, really brilliant, who kind of thought about it and came back with a few ideas saying, well, hang on, you can structure it this way, you know, in this chapter, what are you trying to say? And having someone else to kind of bounce off was really, really interesting. And, you know, one of the things is too that, that, uh, having someone say, you know, what's your book going to be about and having to explain it in words is quite a useful thing because if you find it difficult to explain, then no one's ever going to publish the book. Mm. So know what your book is about is is important point. And, and know how you're going any... to structure it, know how you're going to write it and just have a kind of, have a kind of plan. It's like kind of building the frame of a house almost. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds sounds good. Um, and who who should be reading your book? Who would you recommend it to? Anybody. <laughs> um, anybody who's really interested in, you know, not just um, uh, you know this specific subject of you know why we live in this particularly inactive world, but even people with a general interest in scientific history people who are interested in the design of cities, people who are, you know, have a professional interest in getting people active. Um, you know, I, I like to think this is the sort of book that any reasonably intelligent, curious reader could pick up and would think, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, because there's, there's lessons for more or less everybody's life. You know, I went into the protest thinking, you know, almost feeling slightly smug, thinking, oh, you know, I'm pretty active. I'll be perfectly fine. But then, you know, I found out all the stuff about sitting down too long. And then, you know, it, it, there, there's always things that you can kind of learn. But, you know, even if someone is completely inactive and is going to stay inactive, at least it'll kind of let them think, well, you know, this is a big problem than just me. So even if it just makes someone feel less guilty about being inactive, then that's good. And, you know, the people who listen to your podcast, researchers and things like things like that, even if they know a lot about the particular subject, then who knows? It's possible they might find it interesting to see is it, you know, how it's presented in a kind of general interest way. But, you know, I don't know if people read it and don't like it. I'm happy to hear that too. 
No, I, I think people will will like it. So, <laughs> where, where where can people find it? And is it also as an audio book? Where where would you like to direct the people? They can go to whatever they want. I mean, Amazon obviously has it if they want. I mean, in the UK, there's this organization called or website called bookshop.org, which um, is a kind of collection of local bookshops. You can do internet orders depending on where you live. Uh, it's in hardback at the moment. It came out about a week ago. Um, and there is also a Kindle edition and there's an audio book uh, read by me. Um, I was available and I was cheap. Um, and, and that is available. So it involves listening to my voice for about seven and a half hours. Um, and they're all available under the kind of usual places. So buy, buy it wherever you feel most comfortable buying your books. Oh, actually, yeah. I, sh- I should say that, um, I've actually had a few people who've been kind of tweeting me, uh, emailing me saying that they've ordered it from, you know, their bookshop in the kind of center of the town, the city where they live. And they've specifically walked to the bookshop to kind of pick it up because they, you know, would feel guilty about driving to get a book about uh, activity. I've had also, you know, messages from people saying, is it okay to read the book lying in bed? So, you know, it's definitely making, making people think. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So you actually read the book by yourself. How how was the process of of reading your book for seven and a half hours? It's quite long. I've got a lot of respect for kind of voice actors. I mean, you know, for the first thing, it's quite physically grueling. You know, I asked via Twitter just people about, you know, what tips and some people were saying you should never drink a milky drink because it makes your voice slightly, uh, slightly phlegmy. And I made the mistake on the first day of having a coffee with milk. And it's perfectly true. So just, you know, stick to apparently juice or water are the best things. The other thing is too that having, reading a book out and then reading a book on a page are quite different things. And if I ever write another book, I'd be quite tempted to read it out loud first of all, because A, you notice mistakes. So I noticed three or four tiny errors. By the time I was doing the audiobook, it was too late. The actual physical book had gone to print. So they'll have to wait, you know, till the paperback comes out. But I also, notice that when you read out sentences if a sentence is too long or not very elegant you really notice it so mm. so you know there, there were parts of it where you know i was thinking oh that's really nicely written but the other parts where i was thinking oh i you know do that differently again yeah that's that's a good good point that maybe reading it aloud would would make make the book better when you actually writing it introducing fibian sense motion the beginning of a new era. Fibian SenseMotion is a cutting-edge, next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw three-axis accelerometer data. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S dot Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. And how how long it it took to read? Like it was the final version was seven and a half hours. How long did it take to record? I was in the studio for three days. They booked me in for three days. You, you know, you basically can't do too long. I 
turn up at about 10 or 11 and work till about four, you know, and by that point, you're really, really tired. So it's this quite small soundproof booth that you're in and they had a kind of iPad or some kind of tablet with a book on it. So I could scroll and I had a microphone like I'm sitting down now. And then on the opposite side of this kind of very thick glass was the producer who had their own copy of the book and would be completely silent for kind of ages and ages. But until I made a mistake and they go, oh, you got that word wrong. So they were listening really carefully. And there were some complexities too, because there were some kind of, I don't know, you know, names of kind of chemicals and, you know, people's names who I'd quoted where I'd never actually said them out loud. So they had to kind of check on how they were said. You know, they, they would just go on the internet and there's certain sites which will tell you the pronunciation of certain words. Uh, there was a Brazilian academic who I'd quoted, talked to, but I'd never actually said his name. So they had to kind of go through this kind of Brazilian pronunciation guide as to how to say his name. So there's all sorts of interesting things. Yeah, yeah, sounds sounds really interesting, and in a in a small pool. And I I didn't know that there's somebody listening all the time, every word you say. Uh, was it was it stressful to be <laughs> like reading? It, it is because it's it's quite hard to go for more than a few sentences without making you know a mistake. And if you do, you just stop, pause for two seconds, and then carry on because obviously they edit it all. But you know, there'll be a period when I could get through maybe, you know, half a page without making a mistake or a hesitation or, you know, stumbling over a word. Um, and that felt really good. But there were some times where I'd have to, you know, read a sentence four or five times. And even with ones that were quite complicated, you know, do it in two separate parts. And it's just, you know, reading things out loud in a very fluent way. Is, there's a reason why professional actors are very good at it, because it's not very, you know, it's not a straightforward thing. And if I did it again, I'd be much better at it. But, you know, who knows if that will ever take place again? Yeah, you know, I, I, I know quite a bit of not not being able to say things correctly. Like, <laughs> first of all, English is not my first language. And and then doing sometimes recordings like now, it's for me, it's 10 to 10 in the evening. And, and sometimes I'm doing an episode and a researcher starts to talk about something and I'm not an expert on the theme. Yes. And then there's a lot of new words and I'm like, oh, what, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> How do I pronounce it? And, I know, it's very and difficult. For a, yeah, for a Finnish people, we don't have any rhythm in our talk. We always stress the first syllable. So for us, actually having the rhythm in different words, it's it's more challenging. So I'm, I'm sometimes... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, doing it in a second language is even more difficult. So I have a lot of respect for you doing that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's been really interesting discussions about your book. Is there some other things you would like to bring up into this discussion? I mean, I guess the one thing that I would also say is that, you know, one of the strange things about writing the book was I was writing it, you know, in a period when so much was changing. I mentioned this before, that public health is not a particularly sexy subject. It's not one that, you know, in previous times got talked about an awful lot. And, you know, I planned this book quite a long time before COVID and and I'd planned to write it at, you know, the time I was going to write it. And then suddenly it was very, very strange that, you know, you were in this position where scientific advice to government was always this kind of 
thing that took place in the background that no one ever really kind of noticed. And then you were suddenly having press conferences where you'd have the Prime Minister in the UK giving press conferences, you know, daily with kind of the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor to the government who were previously very, very kind of unknown people who were suddenly become, you know, public figures. And people were talking about uh, epidemiology and population-wide outcomes and stuff like that. And it was, it was, it was very, very odd. And, you know, some of the discussions haven't really gone that far because, you know, in the UK, at least government ministers keep on saying, well, you know, the COVID outbreak, particularly the very high death toll in the UK has highlighted these public health issues the UK has got because, you know, the research very much seems to indicate that coronavirus outcomes can be worse if people have type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure or are overweight to a certain extent and things like that. And ministers have talked about trying to get the population more healthy in case there's a pandemic in the future. And yet we're at a point where, you know, those decisions haven't been taken. So, you know, the book is, you know, a kind of work in progress almost. It presents the facts the way they are now, but it could go either way. I mean, you know, I say this at the end of the book. We could have a thing where ministers, you know, in all sorts of countries think, you know, we need to do things differently. We have been interventionist with coronavirus. We can be interventionist with other public health issues. Or you might just have a thing where, you know, people just go back to driving cars and they don't feel safe on public transport. So more and more people drive cars. And in the UK, certainly some of the temporary bike lanes, which were put in during coronavirus, have been taken out. So it's a kind of, you know, ending on a kind of knife edge, really. No one knows which way it's going to go. Mm. You know, that's a really interesting point that you say that the first time the medical advisors are in the spotlight on a on a daily basis and uh, could it be that in the in the future they would be all the time in the spotlight if there's no pandemic going but actually really advising the political decision making to to guide people for more healthy lifestyle i think it's possible because certainly in the uk i mean you know it's happened in lots of countries but you know, my experience in the UK that people have got used to the idea of scientific advice guiding what government ministers do. And, you know, one of the strange things about it in the UK is that whilst lots of politicians' reputations have been, you know, damaged or their reputations are certainly mixed, the scientific advisors, for the most part, are viewed with a lot of affection. And it's interesting at the press conferences, you have this kind of very stylistic difference a question will be asked to, you know, a government minister and they will give very much a politician's answer. They will answer what they want to. But I think when scientists get asked a question, they get used to, you know, their habit is to answer it as factually as they can. And I think for a watching public, that's quite a contrast. So I think I think people quite like that. Mm, yeah, that's that's interesting. And and you said about the medical advisors and and you were probably reporting the things when the COVID, COVID was starting. And I remember I was looking quite a bit of BBC news at the time. And I think the slogan was like, we will do the right thing at the right time. And I was really horrified, like, no, you are doing, you might be doing the right thing, but you are not doing it the right time or you are not doing it at all. How, how did you feel at, at that time? 
I mean, it's such a confusing time that that no one can really be sure. There was this kind of real sense of panic that things were going very slowly. And, you know, government ministers will not uh, admit it, but it's very, very clear that in lots of parts of the pandemic, the UK has acted, you know, too slowly and not done enough quickly uh, enough, you know, which is why, you know, our coronavirus death rate is one of the reasons why it's, you know, per capita, one of the worst in the world. Um, and I don't know, it's, 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 it, you know, it, it's, as, as you say, the language can be a very frustrating thing at, you know, one of the, you know, one of the kind of, uh, during the early points of the um, uh, coronavirus crisis, a lot of the time government's ministers will say, we're following the science, but it was this idea almost that science is this kind of unified view. Um, and, and I think it's been quite an education for the British public to have you know, scientists being asked by journalists or with members of the public, you know, what do you think the government should do? And they say, well, it's not for us to say. We can present what the kind of options and what the possibilities and what the forecasts are. And we can say, if you do X, then Y might take place. But we can't tell you what to do. And, you know, it's also been interesting hearing scientists explain that, you know, scientists can disagree. There is no one unified view. And and I think mm. it's been quite kind of educational, really. Yeah, and I I think they in the beginning they said that they are following the science, which was, in my opinion, ridiculous. It was clearly shown that they should do the actions right away, and they basically did nothing. So how do you how do you think? who were the scientists in a way? Because I I think they looked into it, and the scientists had actually. Or some medical, uh, some scientific advisors have said that we don't need to do yet anything. So, wh- where did it go wrong, in your opinion? Was it like why? Why did the science say so? Because if you studied the theme a little bit, you knew that it's an exponential cu- curve that yes. you really need to do right away. And I, I was really, I was really stressed that how can it go like this in a in a country which is highly edu- educated, and I, I was really horrified. How did it go? So, what do you think? What what did go wrong? I genuinely don't know, and there will be a public inquiry at some point, which will go into it. I mean, the scientific aspect of it is interesting because, you know, the records do show that some of the scientific ad- ad- advisors were, you know, skeptical about the idea of mass testing, trying to kind of um, eradicate the virus as 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 much as possible. And it's difficult because, you know, you have, you know, examples of other countries which have effectively closed their borders. And in the UK with, you know, for example, such a high proportion of food coming in via freight, you know, via, via, via sea, that would have always been very, very difficult. Um, and, you know, I think it's been an incredibly steep learning curve. And maybe I think, you know, the inquiries might find that the planning that the UK had done for kind of pandemics in the past might have been the wrong thing. They might have modelled it on less infectious ones, maybe things like, you know, the kind of Hong Kong type SARS, which are more dangerous, you know, if if caught, but less easy to transmit amongst the amongst the populations. Um, you know, but at the same time, you cannot separate the scientists from the politicians because they're in the same room together making the decisions, hmm. and and. You know, the scientists would never, ever have been able to say, you know, we insist you introduce lockdown now. Because this was something that, 
you know, a lot of countries did it far too late. And some countries have arguably, you know, done even worse than the, uh, than the UK. And I don't know, with, with Britain, I don't know, maybe there was a certain amount of complacency amongst, you know, scientists, because amongst epidemiologists and things like that, you know, the UK has always had quite a good reputation. You know, a lot of that kind of work has come from the UK. And mm. maybe they just thought they knew what they were doing and they were caught out by a pandemic that no one had ever really seen before in this particular form. Mm, yeah. And when, when you said that it's more contagious, that's this, it could be much more. So I, I think we were lucky that we yes. were struck by this kind of, which is not that, that serious as many other diseases are. There's much more. Well, it wasn't like SARS, which had a death rate of what, 10% or 20% or something like that. So yeah. And, and I think also the, is it reproduction number or how do you call it? Oh but yeah, the uh, R like number. 50, yes, 15 yeah. R number. It might be fifteen times more. So I think we were lucky that <laughs> it happened. We, like we've had a practice run. A practice run. Well, a very tragic yeah. practice run, obviously. But it it is a really really tragic one. But yeah, now we are going a bit more into the politics. Uh, what what would be your final remarks for this very interesting episode? Well, it would. To be, I mean, to kind of directly address your audience, it's the fact that, I don't know, I, I, I'm not a scientist by trade. In fact, because of the kind of craziness of the English, as it, you know, is educational system, where you have to specialize really, really early. I haven't formally studied science since the age of 16, which is quite a long time ago. And so I'm not a scientist by kind of any means, but I was really, really impressed with how good in general researchers and scientists and experts are at communicating what they do. And mm. they were all, you know, very, very helpful. You know, they were happy to, uh, to a talk. And a lot of them could explain things in a very, very eloquent way. And some of the studies are also just written really well. So I think it was quite heartening. And, you know, we're in an era now when, when, you know, science and its interaction with the public is going to be increasingly important and the public going to be much more ready for that. So, you know, I think scientists should be should be proud of the way that they can do that and should basically carry on doing it. Hmm. Great. It was it was pleasure to have you in the podcast. I had a brilliant time talking with you, so really appreciate you taking the time for me. It's a complete pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.